Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with Ian O'Connor of the New York Post. Ian, it's amazing. You, you get conditioned to expect certain things when you, when you watch uh, a sporting event, particularly when you watch something that it kind of repeats itself. And, and that, I'm referring, obviously, to the Knicks and the Nets last night. Uh, when the Knicks were up by 28 points, uh, and I'm, my wife said, well, what else do you want to watch? I said, no, let's watch this because we've seen what happens in the last few weeks to the Knicks when they have a big lead. It can go away. I don't know if they'll lose tonight, but let's watch it anyway. Well, we saw what happened. They've now lost three games in the last 12 games where they had at least a 20-point lead. It's just hard to fathom how you can get into – it's almost like the other shoe is going to drop, you know? Yeah, it is amazing, Howard. I have to be honest with you. Last night, when it was a twenty-eight point game, I was uh, I was very tied up with my my Coach K book, and I had so I turned it off. I, I I could not believe when I saw later on that they lost. I figured I understand how the next season has gone down. That they found all kinds of ways to to lose, but twenty-eight points on a team that did not have Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and certainly Ben Simmons on the floor. I just don't understand how they lost that game. I, I just, I've witnessed a lot of Nick meltdowns this year, but I just could not fathom that that would be another one, yet another one in a long line of them. And and I was absolutely blown away when I saw that they lost. So, uh, listen, it's a, we've been focusing a lot on Julius Randle. Randle has clearly had a resurgence of late. But for most of the season, he was a shell of what he was last year. So that was a big part of the problem. And and who would have thunk it, but uh, 33-year-old Derrick Rose with bad wheels is irreplaceable on this team, which I think is an indictment of the roster, frankly. But without him, it's like the Knicks can't even function. And then you had R.J. Barrett out now for a bit. So uh, the thing that hasn't been written about or talked about a lot is, is Tibbs is having a bad year. And as a coach, too, sometimes very good coaches, and I think he is one, have bad years. And he's having a bad one at a bad time because Randall is, is having a subpar year based on his standard of last year. And he's come on too little too late. And the Knicks, it's hard to believe, are in real danger of not even qualifying for the play-in tournament. And based on what they gave the city and the fans last year, it, it is it's really we all thought they were going to take another step towards legitimate contention this year and they've done the exact opposite to be honest uh when when i saw what happened last year um when they went into that first round against atlanta everybody said well they're going to beat the hawks and i said wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute this hawks team is not as easy to beat as you think they got some guys that can hurt you and sure enough we saw what happened 
but last year seems like such a distant memory, not only for the, from the 41 wins they had last year to where they are now, Thibodeau, coach of the year last year, where he is now, all these things, it seems like that never happened. But let's go back in history. How long, how, how long have you been following the Knicks? Back to what year? Was it Pat Riley or before that? Well, I would say, no, the, the Pat Riley years as a, as a sports writer, but I've been following the Knicks since I was a kid. So, and, and, of course, I, I have vague memories of 73, that championship team. I was eight, nine years old. But, so I, I have not really seen a Knicks team win a championship. But I started covering them as a columnist, really, in the, in the Pat Riley years. And then, of course, through Don Nelson briefly, Van Gundy, and, and forward. And listen, those, those 90 te- 90s teams, the Garden, you wouldn't want to be any other place in New York than the Garden on a Friday night, a playoff game against Miami or Indiana or Chicago. And I would take that over all the great nights in the playoffs and World Series I witnessed at Yankee Stadium. So... It's, it's a shame that the franchise uh, has gone through what it has o- over the better part of, of two decades. If you're a Knicks fan, you thought last year was the beginning of something that could lead to real contention. And now all I've done is taking uh, a giant step backwards. And really, a lot of this year reminds you of, of the past 20 years. And, and, and it's, it's surprising, if not shocking, really. I thought under Thibodeau that uh, this really would be a positive, maybe a, a baby step forward because they didn't make any moves that dramatically altered the roster but they added two offensive players and one doesn't fit in the Thibodeau system I I don't believe Tom Thibodeau ever wanted Kemba Walker on the team Fournier I think is a little bit of a different story because Steve Clifford gave him a a positive recommendation and Tibbs and Clifford are are close and but when you look at Fournier, one night he gives you 30 points, and the next night he'll give you a combined seven or eight, and then he'll give you 30. And then, So he has moments where he looks like a really good player, but uh, in, in the big picture, he hasn't really solved any problems. In fact, he might have created one or two. So it's a, it's a mishmash. It's a team with no identity. And again, if you miss Derrick Rose that much to the extent where you can't even function – then I do think that's an indictment of, of Leon Rose and the roster he put together. You know, you hit on uh, one of the topics I wanted to discuss with you, and that is Leon Rose. Uh, they do nothing at the trade deadline. Um, and I'm wondering why not? Uh, you're, in, you're in the dire straits. Uh, there was rumors about Julius Randle was going to be traded. Uh, and I think they could have gotten an awful lot for him because I don't look at Julius Randle as a superstar. I think he's a nice player. I think he's an all-star player, but I don't look at him as a number one guy on a team. I could see him as a good number two on a good number three on a really good team, possibly. Having said that, he might have been the difference for another team to win a championship and what the Knicks could have gotten back in return would have served them long term. All right, it didn't happen. But to complicate matters, Leon Rose doesn't talk to the media. You have no idea what he's what he's thinking. And you say to yourself, well, look, the Knicks have been a great secret uh, in the James Dolan era, and it, it hasn't changed. And interestingly enough, they got him walking out of the arena last night with six seconds to play. So he was disgusted as well. Well, Leon Rose is, um, by not, you, meant, you, you mentioned not talking to the media. To me, that's not the right way to put it. He's not talking to the fans. That's far more important. Yeah. The media is just the conduit to the fans. And if he cares that little about paying customers, 
Well, when he needs the benefit of the doubt, which might be sooner than later, he's not going to get it. And I, I don't understand executives in New York who willingly take jobs and then try to hide. Hiding in New York doesn't work long term. Brian Cashman has had his ups and downs over 25 years, but he survives in large part because he's accessible, because he he does answer questions in tough times. And he is willing to say, like he did last year, we suck and we got to fix it. And it's on it's on me. It's on all of us. But right now we stink to high heavens. He, he, you know, how many GMs would say that for the record? But this is the one GM who has survived in town longer than anyone by far by doing it that way. So the hiders, to me, it just never made any sense. Accountability goes a long way toward, I think, getting the benefit of the doubt when you need it, as I said earlier. Leon Rose couldn't make any deals because he has a bad team and nobody wants bad players. Uh, that's and, a that that's a great point because uh, that that's I've talked to a number of guys and uh, executives around the league and they say the same thing. I don't want players from bad teams because they have bad habits. Uh, look, uh, you 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 can minimize Derrick Rose, uh, and, you know, an, an aging player with injury with an injury history. But the fact is, Derrick Rose gives them at least some semblance of leadership. They just don't have that on the floor right now. That's true, and his leadership is, is, is sorely missed. But, I again, this is not in his prime, Derrick Rose. Right. And and he was never meant to be this important to a team where it's not like the Knicks are, are the eighth or ninth seed and they're pretty comfortably in the play-in tournament. They're comfortably way out of the tournament. <laughs> and so they're not functioning at all. And so I understand that any team would miss Derrick Rose's leadership. But if, if you're in this kind of a state without him, what does that say about your roster? What does that say about your other players and, and, and the person who put this team together? Neon Rose. And so Derek Rose being out should not be a debilitating or have a debilitating impact on your team. It, it, it should hurt a little bit. Some nights, maybe a lot, because you don't have his leadership and his savvy and vision on the floor, but and his playmaking ability. But it can't be like this. <laughs> No. You can't you can't win a game against anybody against a Brooklyn team that you're almost beating by 30 points and they don't have Kyrie Durant and Simmons on the floor. I just don't understand. And you're you're how do you lose that game? Well, and because so I, like I said, I turned it off. I had about 15 interviews on my Coach K book, and and I I really almost fell out of my chair when I looked at my phone later on and saw that they lost. Like, I, how do you lose that game? I, I don't understand it. Well, a couple of things. Cam Thomas was one. He's a rookie who started out uh, completely uh, out of range. He wasn't making anything. And then he gets going in the second half to the point of where he scores, I think, 15 points in the, in the uh, second half. And part of that 15-0 run where the Nets took the lead with 3.58 to play. And it wasn't just Thomas. It was... Uh, uh, you know, here they get Andre Drummond in the trade for James Harden, and uh, uh, what do you have? Nineteen rebounds last night. Uh, a newcomer, uh, uh, Seth Curry, for the second straight game had over twenty points. They just look. It, it's they. They don't have Durant. They don't have Irving. Uh, they don't have Joe Harris. And all of this is true, but there's there's almost seems like an injection of new energy that's come in to the Nets right now. Look, it's only two-game winning streak. It doesn't mean a lot. And I don't know if Durant's going to be back right after the All-Star game or not. But I do think that the Nets will be, at worst-case scenario, in the play-in. And I wouldn't want to play them if I was a team because 
with a healthy Durant and, and well, Kyrie's only going to be able to play road games. But that brings me to another topic. Yesterday, I'm reading this interview with the mayor of New York and Adam Silver, and they're talking about how unfair the rules are that you can go into Broadway, into a theater in Broadway, but you can't go into the Barclays Center or Madison Square Garden if you're unvaccinated. I don't understand that. Well, in this case, listen, uh, I actually agree with Silver that it, it, it is pretty silly to allow unvaccinated visiting players to play. I, I, that doesn't make really any sense to me either. Right. But at the end of the day, I did think Kyrie had an obligation for to Kevin Durant and his teammates to to get vaccinated. And to, it's not just, I, listen, this is a different kind of job. He's being paid a tremendous amount of money and other people's careers to some degree are connected to his and depend on his as well and his performance. And it impacts a lot of colleagues, a lot of coworkers, a lot of families. And so I'm of the opinion that he should have gotten vaccinated and played with his team and particularly Durant went healthy. Durant signed with the Nets in large part because Kyrie was coming with him. And so I did, I did think he had an obligation to his teammates to, to do that. But listen, at the end of the day, it's possible before the uh, playoffs that Kyrie's eligible to play all the games. And I think the Nets will get one of the top six seeds. I do not think they'll end up in the play-in tournament. I think Durant will come back in enough time. They'll win enough games that they'll get one of the top six seeds. And if they're six or five and Kyrie's playing more of the road games, it might even be something of a benefit to, to Brooklyn to be the lower seed in that first round series. Sure. Crazy as that sounds, but I, I would not want to play them in the first or even second round, but I would be surprised if they had to settle for a playing spot. Talking with Ian O'Connor of uh, the New York Post, uh, you look at um, uh, the uh, the history of Kyrie Irving. Problems in Cleveland, problems in Boston. I mean, I broadcast the Celtics games before he was there, and my partner Cedric Maxwell is still on the crew. And I talked to Max during the, the during last year. He said. There was almost a party thrown when Kyrie left. I mean, that's how unpopular he was in the locker room. So now you bring up a good point about Kyrie, you know, should have gotten the vaccination. And basically, now I'm saying, go, let's go back to the trade deadline. Are you that sure that you're going to be able to re-sign Kyrie Irving because he's a free agent after this year? Uh, were you sure you were going to be able to re-sign James Harden? I mean, James Harden forced his way out of Brooklyn after a year ago when he forced his way out of Houston. So, you know, you know they don't change. The resume doesn't change that much, Ian. You know that. Yeah, that's right. And, and Kyrie Irving has a history of not being happy anywhere. And uh, I just don't I, I just don't see the Nets or anyone really at this point going forward investing long-term in him when his contract expires. So uh, I, I don't see him as a long-term part of, of the future of the Nets. I think Josiah is is not going to reinvest there and so that may have been another reason why the simmons deal made sense they're looking maybe at a big two down the road duran simmons and and so be a kyrie irving and talking to bob Cousy uh, at one point and Cousy told me he's one of the top five point guards he's ever seen as far as distributing the ball and and getting two spots on the floor he wants to get to he said, the guy's unbelievable as a talent. It's hard to deny that. And, and frankly, when he came back, it was an awful lot of fun to watch him play again, to watch him run a team. And you sort of forgot because of all the other noise around Kyrie Irving 
just how good he is. But at, at some point here, you have to ask yourself as a franchise, is he worth the trouble that, that he causes mm-hmm. with, with his behavior? And I, I, you see now other franchises have said, no, he's not worth it. And I think that's where the Nets are going to be. And if they, if they win a championship, things could change. I don't think they'll win the championship. But, again, I'd be surprised if they had to settle for the play-in tournament. I think they'll end up in a better spot than that. Uh, you've written some books that uh, I actually went, I actually read the Belichick book, which was interesting. Uh, when I was doing the Jets games, Bill was the defensive coordinator of the Jets. And so when we were on the road. I'd go down to the gym uh, the morning of a game, like 6 o'clock, and hit the treadmill, and Bill would come in, and it was just the two of us in there. No matter what I asked him, he gave me honest answers to help me prepare for the game. Uh, that's not the same guy that I remember. He's changed quite a bit, and you can attest to that. When, you, when you're preparing to write a book with Belichick, given his history, what did you uncover from him that you totally didn't expect? In terms of Belichick, that is, or Shashevsky? yes, Be- Belichick. Listen, I, I, his friends would would talk about away from the facility, away from the press conferences, away from the cameras. He was an entirely different human being. Uh, he could be funny, engaging, and and be a normal human being instead of the robot he plays on TV. And there was a uh, a purpose behind that. Yeah, his feeling was that that his job at the podium on TV doing press conferences was to give as little information as possible because over the years he had stolen things from coaches who had talked about their preparation and he used it against them. So his only mission when, when doing a press conference was to make sure he gave out as little data and information about his program as possible. And I think he uh, intentionally didn't show any humanity. I think his friends, uh, and the ones I talked to, I talked to a lot of them. I talked to over 360 people for that book. Wow. They, wa- they wanted him to, to show some humanity. And he just didn't think that was, uh, that was beneficial to, to what he was trying to accomplish on the football field. But some of those friends were, he asked them not to talk to me. And they talked to me anyway, just not for attribution. Because they wanted some of the human anecdotes and stories told publicly. So people realize, like, what you see on camera that's not the full picture of the human being and and it's intentional and it's almost like he played a character all these years. And so he had a capacity for kindness and generosity and, and all those things. And and I I think that uh, just never behooved him in his mind to ever show that for public consumption. Uh, You also wrote a book on the greatest golf rivalry, Nicholas and Palmer. And I covered the masters for CBS radio for about 15 years and I was there for Arnie's last uh, appearance at Augusta and saw him uh, on the patio outside the clubhouse uh, the next morning and walked up to him and I said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Palmer, I'm, my name is Howard David. I'm with CBS. Uh, I wonder if I could spend a few minutes with you. He said, sure, let's go sit. It was very hot. Let's go sit under the tree outside the clubhouse. And the first question I asked him was, how do you describe this love affair that Augusta National has with Arnold Palmer. He looked at me and he goes, wow, (laughs) talk about giving me the A question right away. And he gave me a really good answer and so on. We fast forward to the next year. Here's Arnold Palmer standing with with a bunch of guys on the back patio. I'm walking by. I wave to him. He waves to me. He then waves me over. 
And I come over there and I said, yes, sir. He said, I remember your name is Howard. I apologize. I forgot your last name. He, I said, well, what do I owe this honor to? Because you, you must speak to a thousand people every month. He said, well, you asked me a question that stayed with me. You asked me about the love affair that Augusta has with me, and I never forgot that. Ian, I don't know about you, but when Arnold Palmer remembers something you asked him, it stays with you forever. Well, that was the Arnold Palmer experience that you experienced, and, and that's the way he was. He wanted to make eye contact with as many people as possible in the galleries. He wanted to make the fans feel like, hey, he saw me. He connected with me. And it's unfortunate that a lot of golfers didn't embrace that approach. And Jack didn't until later in his career. And Tiger, a little bit at the end of his prime, started to come around on that. But engaging the fans was just something Arnold Palmer felt well, it was natural to him, but he also felt it was part of the package. It was an obligation. These are people who paid to come out to see you perform, and he wanted to make them feel a part of it. So actually, that story is not surprising to hear. I've heard stories like that from many, many different people. He has a, he had a good memory. And, you know, there are days when it, it's still hard to believe that he's no longer on the planet. I, I, Arnold Palmer, to me, just being around him a little bit over the years, I, I felt like he'd live forever. There and was, so he's just one of those guys. That, yep. uh, when he died, it, it really hit home. Yeah, and it's the same thing. Before I let you go, uh, there was a series that Golf Channel did a three-part series on Palmer's life, and I was fascinated with the whole thing. And so I wrote a note to the producers at Golf Channel with an effort to try to get the note to him because I didn't know how to reach him personally. Well, three weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from Arnold Palmer thanking me for taking the time to watch the special. He really appreciated it and remember the conversations that we've had in the past. Uh, it's sitting on my desk in my office in my apartment right now uh, with Arnold's letter and his signature on it. And I have it in a frame and it's one of the most cherished things that I own. Well, again, I've heard those stories too. And uh, I'm glad you had that connection with him because he was a special human being. He really was. And it is unfortunate that more athletes aren't like him. And there are a few. There, there are a handful who conduct themselves that way. And so, yeah, Arnold was, uh, was special. And it was the one trophy that Jack really could never take from him. Jack Nicklaus beat him in most of their head-to-heads and obviously beat him soundly in terms of major championships. But the one trophy he could never take from Arnold Palmer was the People's Championship trophy. Mm -hmm. And he was the People's Champ. And uh, that was something that... He took with him to the grave. Tiger Woods says he's going to play on the PGA Tour again. Do you believe that? Yes. Yeah, I thought all along that the, the one possibility this summer was St. Andrews in July. And I it sounded yesterday like uh, that might be a bit of a reach. I never thought Augusta was in play. and But St. Andrews, he loves it. It's not a hard course to walk. He's won there multiple times. And I thought that by July, he might be able to do it. I still think that. So uh, I, I would, uh, I would, I'm, I'm hoping to book a flight to St. Andrews anyway, but I hope Tiger Woods is there as well. Appreciate your time, Ian. Thanks a million, and uh, you stay safe. All right, you too, Howard. Thank you. Ian O'Connor of the New York Post taking a bite of the Big Apple. A couple of things. Number one, uh, Ian's one of a number of really outstanding writers in the New York Post. You've got Mike Vaccaro, Mark Cantazero, Steve Serby, Ian, Brian Costello, 
Paul Schwartz, a number of guys that really are outstanding reporters. And the, the New York Post is um, a tremendous sports section. For my money, the best sports section in America. But, you know, as a, as a New Yorker, I'm kind of partial to it. Uh, as it relates to last night's Nick game, I remember a conversation that I had with Marv Albert when he was still doing the Knicks. And the Knicks came into the Meadowlands and I was working the games for the New Jersey Nets. And Marv, in his typical sarcastic humor, made references to the fact, well, you know, the, the Nets are still the second citizen in the city. And I said to him, Marv, at some point, the bubble of pomposity is finally going to break. Well, I think it has. Because I cannot see a happy ending to this season for the New York Knicks. Not at all. If they make the play-in tournament, they're not going anywhere. This team has got to be blown up. They have too much sameness. They've got some good young talent. R.J. Barrett is a future all-star player in my judgment. I don't see Julius Randle as a guy who can be the number two guy on the Knicks because he's going to have to yield to Barrett. Derrick Rose, his time is limited. Maybe he's got the rest of this year when he comes back, and that's it. I don't see him there next year. Um, Mitchell Robinson uh, is an unrestricted free agent. He blocks shots. He rebounds. He's got no offensive game other than dunks. He couldn't hit a 10-foot shot of his life depended on it. But yet, he's going to be a coveted free agent by some team. And I don't know that the Knicks are going to want to pay him what it's going to take. Because there's going to be some team out there that looks at him as a guy who can fill the need as a rim protector. Uh, Obi Toppin, possibly he could stay. Uh, but beyond all of that, Tom Thibodeau has gone from being the Prince of New York last year and taking the Knicks to the playoffs for the first time in 10 seasons to where now it's become almost laughable some of the gaffes, uh, bringing R.J. Barrett back into a game uh, when they were down 16 to Denver with three and a half minutes to go. And Thibodeau's explanation was he thought they still had a chance to win the game. Well, that's pure folly. They weren't going to win that game no matter what. Bringing Barrett in turned out to be a big-time mistake because Barrett hasn't played a game since then because he got hurt with 18 seconds to go in the game. Why he was still on the floor at that time? I don't know. Ask Thibodeau. That's one. Two, the other night, they had, he called uh, for a replay when he didn't have the challenge left. So he lost a timeout. And they're playing Oklahoma City. Not a good team. And they had the ball with five and a half seconds left. But instead of having it at half court, which he could have advanced it to with a timeout, they had to take it out from end court and got a prayer of a shot. It didn't fall, and they lost the game in overtime. Last night, you lose a game that you're ahead by 28 points. You hit your first six threes. Now, you knew that wasn't going to continue, but... The drop-off from six in a row to virtually nothing? The drop-off from having a 28-point lead to getting outscored 
by a wide margin in the fourth quarter and watching the Nets go on a 15-0 run without Kevin Durant, without Kyrie Irving, and with a rookie, Cam Thomas, and a player you just recently acquired in Seth Curry, and Andre Drummond, who collected 19 rebounds. I mean, I'm not saying that that the Nets, without all those players, are a mediocre team. They're just not as good as they are with those two guys that I talked about. Three, if you count Joe Harris. So, every button the Nets, the Knicks rather, have pushed uh, this season has come up goose eggs. One mistake, followed by another mistake, followed by another mistake. Tom Thibodeau, to his credit, has taken the blame. I don't blame him for all the mistakes that have happened to the Knicks. But let us just play devil's advocate. Let's say they go into the play-in tournament and they lose in the first round. They lose right away. The discussion will begin. Some people have to pay the price. Will it be Tom Thibodeau? I don't know. I'm not sure of his contractual situation, but I'll suggest that if he's got any time left on his contract, it's not a lot. And so you think the Knicks are going to stop? Somebody's got to pay the price. Usually it's the coach. Now, Randall's still got a couple of years left on his deal. They can keep him and try to build around him, or they can trade him for a lot in return. He would bring a lot in return, but he's not the guy. Yeah, he scored 30 points last night. How'd they do? They lost. He was hot in the first half, couldn't get it done in the second half because psychologically, and I'm not saying this is the case, psychologically, when you build such a big lead, psychologically you let down a little bit. It's normal. It's human nature. But when you're struggling like they are right now, you keep your foot on the gas pedal. No matter what, keep chucking up those threes. Look to win the game. Look to take the lead from 28 to 40. I look what happened the other night with Boston. They're playing Philadelphia. At one point, it was a 50-point game. Boston was ahead by 50. That's unheard of. It's ridiculous is what it is, but (laughs) I don't know. Uh, The way I look at it, I look at the Nets and will they win a championship this year? I don't know. The East is tough, but there's not one great team. There are a number of really good teams. Miami, Milwaukee, Philadelphia. I don't know. The question mark is there. How is Embiid and Harden going to fit? They have other good pieces. Thibault, Maxi, Tobias Harris, they've got talent.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.